we're starting a series called The Problem with the Bible. And we're going to spend the next five weeks talking about the Bible. What is it? The problem with it. What do I do with it? Why was it written? And today, I want to talk about the problem with it. But I want to ask this question, though. What is the Bible? I think we'd get a lot of answers, but, but what is this, this book that I hold in my hands and that some of you hold in your hands or you have in your pockets uh, due to the advancement in technology? And really, what it is, it's 66 books written over a 1,500-year period by 33 different authors. And it's 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament, and then it's divided. As you look through the Old Testament, the books are arranged, at least in in our particular Bible, not in chronological order, but by subject. And so what we have is in the Old Testament, we have the books of law, poetry, history, and prophets. All 39 books fall into one of those categories. You go over to the New Testament, there's 27 And they're divided like this. You have the Gospels, which are kind of like biographical about Jesus. You have the history of the apostles. That's the book of Acts. You have letters that were written to specific churches. And then you have a book that's called Revelation that's of prophecy. Every one of the 66 books falls into one of those categories. Now, that's kind of the logistical answer to what is the Bible, We believe that the Bible is effectively the Word of God, that it is inspired, that it is holy, that it's not just a collection of writings, but more importantly, that it is alive and active and it has power, that it's unlike any other book that exists on the face of this earth. And I asked the question at the beginning, the problem with the Bible. Some of you maybe got a little offended. Some of you say, why would you think that? And some of you said, I'm glad you said that because I have some issues with the Bible. Here's the biggest problem I see with the Bible is effectively, it's not really read anymore. We don't really read it. Not even as Christians. Partly because we don't really read as a society anymore. We consume headlines. We consume 140 character uh, sayings. We are reading less and less as a culture. I read a book a few years ago. And what it said, it wasn't very exciting. It wasn't even a, a Christian book. It was a guy who's won a Pulitzer Prize in research. And uh, he studied and he looked at presidential speeches over the course of the past so many years. And what he found is that as a society, we're becoming collectively dumber. We're becoming functionally dumber. Presidents today, when they give a, a speech to run for president, they speak on an elementary grade level. Back 100 years ago, they spoke on a high school or higher level. We're becoming functionally dumber. Now, how exciting is that? Not very. Now, I'm not saying, and this guy wasn't even a believer. He was just studying society, partially because we're not reading anymore. We're not learning. We get our news from headlines. Some of us in here today in culture, Facebook is the biggest source of news. I'm scared. I'm scared, guys, because it's not all real, right? We make decisions today, philosophical decisions, political decisions, ideological decisions on the basis of a headline. And we share it and we like it. Now, that may not be you. I hope it's not you. But that's what we're doing. So we don't really read the Bible anymore. Whether you're a skeptic and you don't read it, I understand. You're a non-believer, you don't read it, I understand. But the believer part of it's pretty interesting to me. Like, I'm not a follower of Hinduism, so I don't read the Bhagavad Gita, right? So if you're not a Christian, I don't really expect you to read it. But if you are, I think there would be some expectation that we would read it, but we're not. Interesting, I want to share a statistic with you. 
I found this study called the State of the Bible. They do it every year. The Barna Group does it. And it's like 50 pages long. If you want it, send me an email. I'll shoot it to you. But I looked at this stat. It was called Bible Curiosity. That's only done in America. And this is a stat uh, looking at how many people in the U.S. are actually curious about what Scripture says. And look at the, the information here. They divide it into extremely curious, very, somewhat, a little, or not. So extremely curious, 11%. That may be most of us in here. Very curious, 12%. Somewhat, 27. A little curious, 12%. Not curious, 38%. So a little curious and not curious is 50%. Somewhat is 27%. What this means is over three-fourths of our population, our country, has little to no curiosity about Scripture at all. Now, the Bible is still kind of held and viewed with some respect, but people are strikingly not curious about what it says. That number used to be a lot higher. Now, people keep buying Bibles. It's still the most purchased book, but it's not the most read book, right? We, even as, and those numbers digging into people who say they love Jesus and they're a follower of Christ, we're just not reading. Now, the purpose of my message is not to shame you and make you feel bad for not reading. It's just the numbers. It's the problem. I want to ask a question, though. Why don't we read it? Because as we look at another stat, they did this thing like, what's a daily necessity for you? I thought this was great. Take a look at this. Here's a daily necessity. Coffee, 37%. That is totally me, right? 37%. Next, something sweet. Everybody like something sweet? Maybe it's your coffee. Social media, 19%. The Bible was 16 Now, what they did in this study, they gave people the option to choose, and this is what they chose. I knew coffee would win out. I can't read the Bible unless I drink coffee. That's kind of how I feel. But these are daily necessities that we have. Coffee, something sweet, social media. That's kind of where we're we're investing a lot of energy right now into, the curiosity. Why don't we read the Bible? Here's the problem that I think is because the Bible's hard. It's hard. That's why we don't read it. Hard to understand. Hard to accept. Hard to assimilate and interact with our given context and culture. What's hard to understand? What is it really saying? Like when I read in Genesis and it gives me four pages of so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, we're like, God, I don't know. What does beget mean? Right? What is it saying? It's hard to accept when it talks about violence and, and, and women and sexuality and these things. We find it difficult to accept. And we have questions that we don't seem to get the answers to, so we set it down that it's difficult to assimilate into our context and our culture. How do I apply this to my life? How do we, like a few weeks ago when we talked about Judah and Tamar out of Genesis with this father who unknowingly sleeps with his, his uh, daughter-in-law who's posing as a prostitute, how, how do we look at that and say God isn't honoring that, but God used that? How do we make that fit in our lives? We have questions. It's difficult. It's hard to accept, and it's hard to assimilate. I think it's a part of the reasons why we don't read it. The other thing I told you about was this, is that we're just not reading as a society anymore. We're reading less and less books, and we're consuming more and more headlines, tweets, short little things. Now, we can bemoan that and be mad about that, but I do think there's some serious considerations there. When we don't read, we don't really learn in the same way as just by watching a movie or listening to someone else tell us something. Now, 
Here's what's interesting. I want to read this quote to you. I found this quote as it relates to the power of books. Now, I have to give you just, you know, I have a confession. I'm a reader. I like to read. So I'm a little, I'm a little biased and a little jaded here. But I want you to listen to this. This is the power of books. It says, books in a way uh, that is different than visual art, music, the radio, or even love, force us to walk through another's thoughts, one word at a time, over hours and days. We share our minds for that time with the writers. There is, there is slowness, a forced reflection required by the medium that is unique. Books recreate someone else's thoughts inside our own minds, and maybe it is this one-to-one mapping of someone else's words on their own without external stimuli that give books their power. Books force us to let someone else's thoughts inhabit our minds completely. And I would assert to you today that if that is the power of books, I can't think of one other book that I would want to take the opportunity to allow its thoughts to inhabit my thoughts and begin this process of transformation. That's how I look at Scripture. One of the things I want us to do throughout this series is, number one, to have our view of the Bible maybe challenged, to maybe rediscover a passion or discover a passion for what God's Word says. But here's what I'd love for you guys to do. I would love over the next, well, now four weeks, is if you have a physical Bible, pick it up and bring it to church. Pick it up and read it. For the next four weeks, do me a favor. Don't read the Bible on your phone and read the real thing. Well, that's really bad to say. Read the physical thing because it is the real thing on your phone. I have nothing, nothing against the Bible being on technology. But there's something about when you remove the external stimulus, meaning I'm reading on my phone, then I'm checking Facebook, then I'm looking at my emails, then somebody texted me, then, 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 then. But when I get a physical book and I set it down and I start shaking a little bit because I don't have the access to it, right? And when I finally calm down, I'm, I'm, I'm for real, it takes me about 20 minutes just to sit and go, de- you know, kind of decompress a little bit, you know, just, just get away from all that. I want you to do that. Just pick it up. Hold it, because I think there's something unique. Some people say that physical books will go out. I don't think they ever will. I don't think print will ever be removed. I think it's amazing that God's decision to have his revelation to all of us of himself, he put in the form of a book. God could have adopted any technology he wants because all technology stems from him. Right? But God chose the written word. The one thing that transcends culture, the one thing that transcends time, the one thing that has has stood the test against technology, the written word. And what I want to do today is ask this question, why should we read it? Why should we read it? Because God said, well, culturally speaking, that answer isn't good enough anymore. 75% of people have no curiosity what it says. Sometimes I think this, I think that we believe, we think we believe in Jesus because we believe in the Bible, but it's the other way around. We believe in the Bible because we believe in Jesus. And Jesus loved the Bible. Jesus quoted the Bible. Jesus put himself underneath the authority of the Bible. See, we believe in the Bible because we believe in Jesus. We don't believe in Jesus because we believe in the Bible, because the Bible is not more important than Jesus. For some of us, that may be a little bit, we have to think about that a little bit. Sometimes I think what we've done in church is, Christianity, we've elevated the Bible to the position of God. Right? But no, 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 no. We believe in the Bible because we believe in Jesus. And Jesus loved the Bible, and he quoted the Bible, and he read the Bible, and he studied the Bible. And if I'm a follower of him, then maybe, just maybe, I should do that too. And maybe, just maybe, if I'm new to this whole thing, and I've never read the Bible, but I'm, I'm like 
Jesus touching my life, he's saving me, maybe I could give the Bible a shot. And maybe if you're a skeptic, you could say, if Jesus, whom you have some respect for, would read and study and quote the Bible, then maybe there's something more to it than just the things I disagree with. What I want to do today is just share a story with you from Scripture and see three things that Jesus teaches us about the Bible. Three things that I think that we have to accept. The first one that I already said, though, we believe in Jesus, the Bible, because we believe in Jesus, not the other way around. But in Matthew chapter 4, we find Jesus off the heels of being baptized by John the Baptist. He goes into a period of fasting in the wilderness for 40 days. He's not eating. He's just out there, and he's praying, spending time, and he is tempted by the devil in three times. And every single time that he's tempted by the devil, Jesus' first words are, for the scriptures say, or it is written. He responds with scripture, the Bible, not his own words. Let me read this to you, Matthew 4, 1 through 11. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights he fasted and became very hungry. During that time, the devil came to him and said, If you are the Son of God. It's really important to understand this because when Jesus was baptized, the Bible says that God spoke from heaven and said, This is my Son and whom I'm well pleased. And immediately following, the devil is saying, if you are the Son of God, introducing doubt. Look all the way back to Genesis. What did the devil do to Adam and Eve? Did God really say? Questioning the very word of God. That's what the devil's doing here. He says, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. And Jesus told him, no. The scriptures say, people do not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, hey, even the devil's quoting the Bible here now. He's actually quoting Psalm 91. He will order his angels to protect you and they will hold hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, The scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory or their wealth. I will give it to you all, he said, all of it to you, if you will kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. For the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil went away and the angels came and took care of Jesus. I think there's three things here revealed in each temptation about scripture that we learn. The first thing in the temptation is this, is that we learn that the Bible is enough. The Bible is sufficient. Let me read you the verses here, Matthew 3 and 4. He says, During that time the devil came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. And Jesus told him, No. The Scriptures say people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So we can't forget that Jesus is fasting, meaning that he's hungry. That's what happens when you fast. You become hungry, right? And you want to eat. But you're saying, I'm not going to eat because I'm going to focus all this on, on him. The devil comes along and says, Jesus, you have the power, and if you're the Son of God, you can tell these stones to become bread and eat them. Jesus, recognizing that he can, refuses because he says, no, for the Scripture says, he refuses to acknowledge or give in to the fact that he is hungry and he could do it. Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He quotes Scripture, and what he says is, yes, I could Make these stones into physical bread. But that will only satisfy me now. 
He says the word of God is satisfactory and sufficient to supply every need that I have, and it is life. What he's saying is that food can give me a a spot or a shot of life here, but the word of God actually contains life and eternal life, and we as human beings live and need every word that comes from the mouth of God. What we have in our society and culture is, is that, no, we are individuals who produce for ourselves. We are sufficient. We can get a job. We can earn. We can get answers to questions. We can define life by how successful we are, everything that we do. And Jesus is saying, no, that doesn't bring life. That may bring momentary happiness. That may bring some sense of accomplishment. But life is more than what you see and what you can achieve, that there is an eternal component to you and I And it is God and his words. Now think about this. If we stay within the realm of scripture, you go to the beginning, we believe that God created the world, that it's not a product of time plus chance plus matter, but God created. And how did he create? He spoke. When God speaks, life happens. Life, the Bible says, is sustained by the very word and the voice of God. What Jesus is saying We live not on what we can see, what we can achieve, what we can just consume. We live at the depths of our being from every word that proceeds forth from the mouth of God, that it's true life. Jesus is saying the Bible is sufficient. The Bible is enough. The Bible is the very source or the the revealing of the source of life, and that is God himself. Now, here's the thing. The Bible addresses some pretty big questions in life, doesn't it? Addresses life and death, marriage, sexuality, finances, uh, right and wrong, truth, all these big things, all these big issues that we're arguing about now in the public sphere, all these things that, are, that kind of have an assault on them right now that we, we have to have answers to. And if we're not careful, this is what we do. We look at the big questions of life, and we pick and begin to pick and choose what we want to believe about Scripture and what we like and what we don't like. Thomas Jefferson, you ever heard of the Jefferson Bible? He really like went through with like scissors and just cut out everything he didn't like and reassembled what he did like, and that's the Jefferson Bible. It wasn't his translation. It was his picking and choosing of what he liked and what he didn't like. Now, I can relate because there's things I like and there's things I don't like right? But what happens though is we begin to default or are driven by our experience and our intelligence. My experience tells me, my level of intelligence tells me, therefore that's what I'm going to do. Rather than submitting our experience and our intelligence to the fact that, or the possibility that, wherever you're at, that there is one who is transcendent, meaning outside of you and I, that has defined what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong, what is life, what is death, what is morality, what is sexuality, what does marriage look like? Because if we start saying that our experience and our intelligence is the measuring stick or the barometer with which we're going to start deciding what's right and what's wrong... When me and Grant disagree on something, who's right? 
His experience and his intelligence tells him one thing. My experience and my intelligence tells me the other. Who gets to decide what's right and what's wrong? That's where it begins to break down. Truth is not relative. Truth is exclusive by nature. It's it's really great to live in a society where we get to decide what's right and wrong emotionally until somebody comes along that you disagree with. And when we're arguing on the basis of experience and intelligence, what if mine's higher than yours? Am I automatically right? Are you automatically wrong? And when it's reversed. That's why we struggle because we have to acknowledge that there is one outside of us. There is one who has come before, who we would say is pre-existent, who has said this is right and this is wrong, and I defer my experience and my intelligence to you. Because when we start to take on that responsibility, difficult things happen. We start to try to decide when does life begin and when does it end. When I look at my experience and intelligence, I say, I'm not qualified to say when life begins and ends. I got to look outside of me to someone who's come before me, to one who is greater than me, to say, this is when life begins and this is when life ends, because if it's up to me and if it's up to you, we're probably going to disagree. We're talking now in our society, in our culture about what does gender mean and can you choose it? And can you choose it on the basis of how you feel? Some of us are like, oh my God, I can't believe that's happening. Yeah, it's crazy, but we got to have a better answer than, oh my God, it's happening. Right? We have deferred so long to our experience, our intelligence, and I'm going to take it one thing further, our emotions, that we can't see the forest for the trees. What Jesus is saying is, the word of God is enough. And it, it most ultimately and definitely will come against your experience, your intelligence, and your emotions. And Jesus decides to place himself underneath the authority of it and say, I choose to live on the basis of every word that has come forth from the mouth of God. It's enough, is what he's saying even when it doesn't give me the answers I want, even when it presents more questions and problems to me than I thought it would, it still is enough. That's what he's teaching us. And he had the power to satisfy himself in the moment, but he chose to accept the eternal reality and truth of the Scripture. How many of us are deferring to experience, intelligence, and emotions to get a momentary shot, all the while disregarding the eternal implications of our decisions, our thoughts, and our actions. Yes, the Bible's difficult. Yes, it's hard to accept. Yes, it's hard to assimilate. But I don't believe in Jesus because I believe in the Bible. I believe in, I believe in the Bible because I believe in Jesus. And if he can say it's enough and I'm following him, then I have to position myself to begin to experience the fact that it is enough, that it is sufficient. And the next thing that he teaches us is this, that the Bible is trustworthy and coherent. Because the devil does something pretty unique here in the next one. He starts quoting scripture to Jesus. He says, And the devil took him to the holy city of Jerusalem, the highest point of the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, then jump off, and the angels will protect you, and you'll hold up your hands, and you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. And Jesus responded, The scriptures also say, You must not test the Lord your God. So the devil quotes scripture. 
I think it's very easy at times to look at scriptures and say, man, they can be pretty contradictory, right? You can pull one from here and one from here and make them fight. And we pull things out of context all the time. And unfortunately, throughout history, scripture has been used to justify some pretty heinous and horrible things. In our own country, we use scripture to justify slavery. People have used scripture to justify genocide. People use scripture to justify mistreating their wives. People use scripture all the time to justify horrible and heinous things. Mark Twain said sometimes the problem with the Bible is it reveals, it reveals poison, but it also reveals the cure. Not that the Bible's poisonous, but humanity is poisonous, and we tend to twist and use things for our own purposes. But in scripture is the cure for what is ailing humanity. But it seems contradictory. And I love what Jesus does here is he recognizes, yeah, you're quoting scripture, but you're wrong. You don't really know it. Let me tell you what God says. Don't test him. So what you think it says, it doesn't really say, because what you've done is you remove the text from the context, and when you do that, you're only left with a con. It can be confusion. It can be contradictory, right? How many of you have picked up a novel and said, I think I'm going to start on chapter 3, paragraph 4, verse 3? And you open it, and you're like, who's Bobby, and why is he doing this? Let me go to chapter 7. The third page, the fifth paragraph, the second sentence. No, we don't read that, but that's what we do with the Bible. We just like flip it open and point our finger. Somebody told me that, that, you know, the old joke that a guy flipped it open and said, I'm going to point my finger, and pointed his finger to it and said, Judas hung himself. Well, that's not good. Closed it, opened it back up, flipped, pointed his finger and said, go and do likewise. Right? (laughs) That's what a lot of people do with Scripture. I I I need a headline. I need a tweet today, God. I need, I need to prove my point that somebody's wrong. So I'm going to take a scripture, remove it completely from its context, and use it as to fight or to prove something. Realizing, take a step back, that scripture has a coherence to it. It has a trustworthiness to it. That Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 5, right after this, I came to fulfill the scriptures, not to abolish them. It's trustworthy because Jesus knew what they said, and he knew that if he was going to fulfill it, then that meant him giving up his life. And we know that he struggled with it because in the garden, before he went to the cross, he asked God, if there be any other way, please let this cup, let this job, let what I'm about to do pass from me. He was so overwhelmed that the Bible says he was sweating blood because of the anxiety. And then he says, but nevertheless, your will be done, not mine. Jesus trusted in the message of Scripture, the the coherence of it. It made sense to him. He believed in it, and he allowed it to direct his life. And what he's saying is, Scripture is coherent, and it is trustworthy, even when it seems it's contradictory. What I love to do is, if there's a contradiction in Scripture, it doesn't make me want to put it down. It makes me want to discover why I think it's contradictory. You can find contradiction in anything. And when you just open it up and point your finger and pit two verses against each other, it may seem a bit contradictory. But when you realize that it's kind of like a novel and it's telling a story and the overarching narrative of it is about Jesus and about salvation and about reconciliation and about how humanity has done some crazy things, you begin to see the overall picture of Scripture. And when you see, no, it's not just a good book. It's not a rule book. It's not, you know, all no, no, no. It is God's revelation of himself. 
And we can see that it's coherent and trustworthy because of the third thing that Jesus teaches is this, is he says that it is authoritative. And now I think this is where we all maybe take a step back and say, it's authoritative. What does that mean? But listen to this, the third and final temptation. It says, next the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it to you, all of it to you, he said. I will kneel down and worship me. And he said, get out of here, Satan, for the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and, only, and serve only him. So the devil says, look, hey, hey, here's all of the world. Here's all their kingdoms. Here's all their wealth and all their glory. And all you have to do is worship me, and I will give it all to you. I'll give it all to you. Just worship me. Jesus responds again, for the scriptures say, for it is written, I will only worship God and serve him only. What we see Jesus doing here is something very unique. He's placing himself underneath the authority of Scripture. But my question is this, before we move on, where does the Bible get its authority? If I'm going to tell you it's authoritative, then we have to establish where it gets its authority from, right? Because we can run around saying, well, this is authoritative and this is authoritative. See, the Bible gets its authority from God. God does not get his authority from the Bible. The Bible gets its authority from God. Matthew 28, Jesus says, All authority has been given to me underneath heaven and earth. He doesn't say all authority has been given to me underneath the Bible. All authority has been given to me underneath heaven and earth. The Bible does not give God authority. God grants authority to the Scriptures. And that's a very key thing we need to understand. Jesus who is God, places himself underneath the authority of Scripture and says, I will not do that because Scripture says this. Places himself underneath the authority of Scripture and says, it will govern my life. It will be the document with which I look to to have authority, to be that thing that exists outside of me, that it's not going to be based on my experience, my intelligence, or my emotions but it is authoritative in my life, and it addresses very big questions that I need to be familiar with and acquaint myself with so that I can have a, a, not only an understanding to make a decision, but an understanding to talk about to others who may look and view it from a different perspective. What I find so interesting is this. Some people say, I have a hard time with the Bible being authoritative over me, that a document can legislate that. But I want to talk to you just for a moment about the Constitution, What gives the Constitution its power? You? No. The Constitution is a document that the Founding Fathers put together that said this will be the authoritative document that will legislate authority and rule and order and a sense of morality in our country. And every country pretty much has followed suit, or I mean, we're late to the game. They all have a document that legislates and mediates authority. Now, if you don't like the Constitution, I understand. If you don't agree with it, I understand that too. But if you want to see if you're really underneath the authority of it, break the law and see what happens. And if your defense is, I don't like it, I don't agree with it, and I think it should be thrown out, that's fine. They'll say, just figure that out while you're sitting in a prison cell somewhere. That document is mediating, legislating authority, and you and I are underneath its authority whether we like it or not. We're very used to this kind of thing. But when it comes to Scripture, it's a bit different because God has given us like free will and an opportunity to say, I choose to be under the authority. If you're born in America, you ain't got a choice. 
The Constitution is your authority. You can go somewhere else, but they got another Constitution, and they have another authority. We're going to be under authority wherever we go. There's an authority in your job. There's an authority in the store, wherever you go. And Jesus chooses to place himself under that. And I find it so amazing that God in his infinite wisdom says, I'm going to give you a document that will mediate and legislate the authority that I have on this earth. And not just as a book of law, but say, hey, look, this will also reveal to you who I am. And what I've done and what I will do if you will submit yourself to the authority of God's word. That instead of our experience, our intelligence, and our emotions having the final word, God's word has the final word. And when we place ourselves underneath its authority, we bring our problems, we bring our questions, we bring our issues to it, and we're honest and say, God, I don't understand, I don't agree, I just read about Judah and Tamar, I just read about 75 begats, I don't get it. And I go back to it and I say, okay, it is enough. Jesus, you, you said it is enough. Jesus, you, you, you said it is coherent and trustworthy, and you said it is authoritative. And if I'm going to follow you, and if I believe in the scriptures because I believe in you, then I'm going to follow suit, and I'm going to give it a shot. Those are the three things that we learn from him. It is enough. It is coherent and trustworthy, and it is authoritative. And the authority comes not from itself, but God grants the scriptures authority. And we believe in the Bible because we believe in Jesus. We don't believe in Jesus because we believe in the Bible. I think what happens sometimes is this, is we forget that this Bible is all about Jesus. It's not meant to be a rule book. It's not meant to be a weapon in the hands of a believer who wants to whack people with it when they do something wrong. It's not meant to to be brought into the sphere of an argument to prove an obscure point that you have. It's all about Jesus. In the old, he's concealed. In the new, that he's revealed. It is a message to you and I about the person of Jesus that happens to answer very big questions in life, that deals with our mess, that is incredibly honest about humanity. And we look at it, and sometimes we see ourselves, and we look at it, and sometimes we don't like what we see. But really what the Bible is saying is, don't just look at me, look through me to see Jesus. That's what the scriptures do. They give us a lens with which to see Jesus that isn't solely based on our experience, our intelligence, or our emotions, but that puts to test our experience, our intelligence, and our emotions. Next week, we're going to talk about why was it written? What's the purpose of the scripture, the reason for the Bible? But what I want to encourage you with this morning is this. Yes, I want you to read it. Please read it, right? Stats say that we're not. Don't do it to accomplish something. Don't do it because you say, if I read the Bible, then I'm going to get stuff. Hey, hey, it, the Bible is not, is not giving you eternal life. It is God. He's just revealing it to you through here. The Bible isn't giving you promises. It is God who is giving you promises revealed through the Scripture. It is a lens to see him, okay? But pick it up and read it. Where do I start? Hey, I don't know. There's 66 ways to start, but just start maybe in the book of Mark, reading about Jesus. It's a great... Just wham, bam. It is so, like, there's not a super lot of detail. It moves quick. It moves fast. It talks about Jesus. Start there. How much should I read? Man, if you read a verse, that would be a great start. Read a chapter. Start in the beginning of a book, not in the middle. Read it. 
break out a physical copy. I don't have a Bible. Hey, we had last service like 25 New Testaments sitting out on the, on, the, uh, on the registration desk. If you need a Bible, go grab it. You know, go grab it. You can have it. it it's yours. Pick it up. Read it. And here's the last thing I would say is just two more things. Number one, if you've been a believer for a long time, one of the things that happens is this, is we tend to be look at the Bible and just study it for a source of knowledge and not relationship, and then we get kind of conceited and puffed up. But look at all this knowledge I got. Look at my Bible. I got 27 different highlighters in it. <laughs> right? I should write a book of commentary because, you know, I study it every day. I took pictures of myself with my cup of coffee and put it on Facebook just to let you know that I read Scripture. Right? And I downloaded an app that puts, like, a Scripture on a picture every day. I don't have to do it. It just does it. Right? Puffed up with it. Look how much I know. God is saying it's not about how much you know because knowledge does not produce humility. Knowledge alone does not produce relationship. I've shared this before. Love Michael Jordan. Know every stat. I don't know him. The more I found out about him, more I realized as a kid, maybe he wasn't the greatest role model. Knowledge does not produce humility. Knowledge does not produce relationship. But knowledge is necessary to learn more about something. But study it with the purpose to know him, not to know stuff. Not to prove a point. Let it mold you. Let it shape you. Let it be enough for you. Let the coherence and the trust, trustworthiness come as part of a relationship, as part of a journey. And secondly, if you're in here and you say, you know what, I stopped reading it because of the questions I had, the difficulty I had, war, violence, women, sexuality, whatever the case may be, we can keep going. And I, or, or something happened in your life, it's just difficult. You lost somebody, you lost a job, there's just a difficulty, and you've lost trust in God. May I encourage you, encourage you to give it another shot and say, maybe it really is enough. Maybe it really is coherent and trustworthy. Maybe it really is authoritative, and I need that in my life. I just love that statement. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds forth from the mouth of God. Jesus is the word of God. That's what he says. In the beginning was the word, and the word became flesh. The word is with God, and the word was God. Jesus is the physical representation of everything that we read in this book. So next week, come with questions. Come with issues as we talk about the reason for the Bible. But let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for every person that's here this morning. I thank you that we can take a, a fresh look at your word. I ask that, Holy Spirit, you do something unique here today, that you, you, you create a, a hunger and an excitement and a curiosity for what the scriptures say. The questions we're facing today in our society and our culture, you have an answer to. You, 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 you have an argument against or for. Help us to assimilate your word. Help us to, as Eugene Peterson said, to eat this book and treat it as life. Father, I thank you for every person here. I just pray you'd meet needs. You'd provide finances. You'd reconcile relationships. Lord, you would, you would just do the miraculous things that need to happen in this place. And I pray that people just encounter, that we all do, encounter you through opening up your word and discovering the life that is contained within it. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.